In February 1891, two small whale boats from the British vessel, the Star of the East, were lowered into the frigid waters near the Falkland Islands, 500 kilometers east of Argentina, after sighting a huge sperm whale. Crew member James Bartley, who was 21 years old, watched as the harpoon met its mark and the creature dived 250 meters below the surface before the line went slack once more. Moments later, the whale burst from the water, smashed one boat, and all but two of its crew members were rescued. One of the missing was Bartley. The whale resurfaced and was winched to the ship where the whalers, as they began to cut the whale open, noticed movements in its stomach. So they cut open its gut. Out came a boot on a trousered leg. And there was James Bartley, still alive after 15 hours in the belly of the whale. Its digestive juices had permanently blanched his skin a deathly white. He lost his hair and was nearly blind. For two weeks he was out of his mind, delirious. It was a month before he could tell how he'd fallen into the whale's mouth, felt the huge teeth grate against him as he slid down into its throat and into its stomach. This modern Jonah lived 18 more years, dying at age 39, continues the account at the Eden Killer Whale Museum on the south coast of Australia. It sourced the story to the records of the British Admiralty. The museum adds a note. Before diving, sperm whales inhale deeply and rapidly, storing oxygen in muscle fibers, tissues, and blood. Could it be that James Bartley survived through the storing up of such oxygen? The answer is no way. This story, this recounting of the whaling adventure is clearly a big fish story. It was retold and republished years and years in magazines and newspapers all the way up to 1985. But later, research debunked this account. That ship was not a whaling ship, and there was no record of a James Bartley on the cruise register. For a hundred years, the media circulated this fake news. We've been looking at Jonah over the last few weeks. We're going to uh, continue in that study. That was a big fish story we just heard. We're going to talk about another big fish story. But unlike the other one, it has never been debunked. And it is true. Let's review for a minute. Set the context for Jonah. In chapter 1, we found that Jonah was a man called by God. He was a prophet of God to the nation of Israel. God had set him aside as his spokesman. Now in chapter 1 of Jonah, we find that God speaks to Jonah and gives him a new assignment. What was Jonah's reaction? Was he excited? 
<laughs> no way. Jonah didn't like his new assignment. And he runs from God as far as he can in the opposite direction. God pursued Jonah. I learned something as we read Jonah chapter 1. God is more committed to his relationship with Jonah than Jonah is committed to his relationship with God. And as I read that, it kind of convicted me. I, I think that's probably true of me. It may be true of you at times. But God, being committed to Jonah, wasn't allowing him to run. So what did he do? He caused a great wind to come, which then turned into a huge storm. And as we looked at the language there, uh, it looks like it might have been a hurricane. But God wasn't after Jonah to punish him. He was after Jonah to restore him. So the, pan the sailors panic. Where's Jonah at this time? Do you remember? Sleeping in the bottom of the boat, oblivious to all that's going on. The sailors are not oblivious. They panic. They start throwing overboard all their cargo, trying to lighten the load. Finally, they're looking around, and as they're praying to their gods, they're searching for Jonah, and they find him in the bottom of the boat, and they wake him up. They say, what are you doing? We're praying to our gods. You pray to your God. What's going on here? And Jonah realizes what's happening. He realizes that it's not just an ordinary storm, that it is the hand of God. So Jonah admits that it's his fault. He tells them what's going on. He tells them he's running from God. And he says, uh, the only answer is for you to throw me overboard. And that'll take care of things. The sailors didn't want to do that, so they rowed and rowed as hard as they could. Still made no progress. The boat was about to sink. And so as a last resort, they prayed and asked for God's not to hold Jonah's blood against them. And they cast him overboard. What happened when Jonah's feet hit the sea? Calm. As soon as he hit the water, the sea stopped its raging. And we see at the end of chapter 1... Jonah floating down to the bottom of the sea. That's where we find him in verse 17 of chapter 1. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days <clears throat> and three nights. When I read this, Two questions immediately popped into my mind. They may be the same questions you would be asking. First question is an obvious one. Do you really believe this is what happened? A giant fish prepared by God swallowed Jonah, and he lived in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights? Do you really believe that? Let me ask you a follow-up question within that question. Do you believe that the Almighty God who spoke this whole creation into existence, who flung the stars out, who, who created man out of the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, the, the same God who holds all things together. Do you think that that God would have any trouble at all finding a fish to swallow a man? <laughs> no way. You know, even if I don't believe it, Jesus believed it. 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Notice Jesus' language. It wasn't parable language. It was, I want to tell you a story. He stated it as fact. Just as this happened, here's what's going to happen to me. He made a correlation between Jonah and himself. Do you really believe that 2,800 years ago in the Mediterranean Sea, a great fish swallowed Jonah? I do. If it's good enough for Jesus... Good enough for me. Second question, what kind of fish was it? I can, I can tell you in three letters what kind of fish it was. B-I-G. It was big. That's the only thing scripture tells us about it. It was a great fish. It could have been a whale. could have been a shark. It could have been a special creation just for this occasion. God leaves that to our imagination. Not imagining whether or not it happened, but imagining how it happened. All I know is this. God spoke to this great fish, and that great fish said, Yes, sir. And then we go to chapter 2. But before we get into chapter 2, A couple of things that, that, again, stuck with me. Running from God is a very foolish thing to do. Why? God has no trouble finding you. Psalm 139. I love this psalm. And it convicts me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You can almost imagine Jonah saying this. But it was David. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. It's foolish to run from God. Let me ask you a question. Don't don't raise your hand, but just think about it. Has there been a time in your life when you've been running from God? Maybe he's convicted you about something he wants you to do, and you say, like Jonah, I don't think so. Or maybe it's just that you don't want to have to deal with with your sin and you're just God ignore me I'm going to ignore you I'm fine the way I am it doesn't do any good you can't hide the old saying you can run but you can't hide the second thing I found there in that verse God will do whatever it takes in pursuit of his wayward children You can run, but you can't hide. And God, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is like the relentless hound on a fox hunt. He's the hound of heaven. He knows where you are, and he's going to do whatever it takes to bring you back into relationship with him. 
So let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. We're going to be going through this chapter. It's only nine verses, ten verses. And we'll look at each verse. Jonah's prayer takes place while he's in the belly of the fish. This isn't the prayer he prayed as he was sinking. Now he's in the fish and he's praying. But he's recounting what happened when he floated down to the bottom of the sea. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. He said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds, seaweed, was wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet, you've brought me up. You've brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This was not a Pinocchio experience. <laughs> he didn't have a chair in there and all the comforts of home and a little stream running through the... No. It was dark, it was cold, and I imagine it really stunk. Verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. You know, it said that, that, that he prayed as he went down. What do you think his prayer was when he was floating down? Four-letter word. Starts with H. Help! <laughs> you ever prayed that prayer? You've been in a split instant. You've been in a situation where you're beyond yourself and you know you're in deep trouble. And you say, help me, God. How many have prayed that prayer? If you haven't, you will. It's part of life. Jonah prayed to the Lord. But I, th- I think it's interesting. Then, after he's in the fish's belly, that's when he really starts to pray. Not as he was floating down, not as he was finding himself nearly drowning, but as after he's swallowed, Jonah's describing what he experienced and he recounts what it was like. Verse 2, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. S-H-E-O-L. What is that? It's a Hebrew word for the grave. That's what they talk about when you die. It's where your body goes. He was near death. It was a near-death experience. I thought I was going to die. And then look at verse 3. There's a really interesting three-letter word in the first line there. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. And the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. So he's starting to sink. But I thought it was the sailors who threw him overboard. What's it say? You, capital Y, you, O oh God, 
cast me into the sea. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Verse 4. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight. What was it that Jonah wanted when God had told him to go to Nineveh? What did Jonah want? He wanted to get away from God, didn't he? Get away from what God was telling him to do. He says, no, I don't like that. I hate those people. They're savages. They're the enemies of Israel. They're the enemies of you, God. Why would you send me to them? (coughs) I've been expelled from your sight. You know what? Jonah got just what he had wanted. He wanted to get away from God as far as he could. And he did. God gave him just what he wanted. But you know what Jonah found out? Same thing I find out sometimes. That what he wanted wasn't what he wanted. Let me say it again. Jonah found out that that what he thought he wanted was not what he wanted. Look at the last part of that verse. Yet you've brought me up out of the pit. Wow. I will look again towards your holy temple. Jonah's realizing he can't get away from God. And he has hope that someday he's going to get back right with God again. I'm going to look to your temple. I'm going to worship you, God. Jonah was taken by God to the bottom of the sea in order to get Jonah's attention. Think about it for a second. Doesn't he do that in our lives too? He allows us to get into situations beyond ourselves for the purpose that we will be turning back and focusing where we ought to focus, focusing on him. Verse 5, the waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I think I shared this story before, but when I turned 60, Joan, my wife, gave me scuba diving lessons for my birthday. Something I dreamed about since I was a little kid. I used to watch Sea Hunt with Lloyd Bridges. Any of you ever watched that show? One of, oh, yeah, the old folk. <laughs> you guys really missed something fun. Ever since I started watching that, I wanted to scuba dive. I loved to swim. I used to be a lifeguard in college. I, I loved the water. Took those lessons, got certified. We lived in Southern California, and I had a friend who had a boat, and we used to go to Catalina. Visibility, 50, 60, 70 feet in this beautiful crystal clear water. Scuba diving, 100 feet below in the, in the kelp beds. And just kind of camp out in the kelp beds and watch the amazing creation of God swim by. But as I was down there, it never happened to me, but in my imagination as I looked at this kelp forest in which I was hiding, I could imagine the kelp wrapped around me and the panic that would ensue. I can imagine if I were at that spot a hundred feet below the surface without my regulator and my oxygen and my buoyancy control vest, without that life support, can you imagine the panic that would set in? Not able to breathe, the water, everything closing around you, trapped by the seaweed wrapped around your head, It was a near-death experience for Jonah. Matter of fact, several 
people, uh, theologians, several commentators that I read actually believe he did die. And that's why Jesus was literal in what he said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights. I'm going to be three days and three nights. I'm going to die. Jonah died. It doesn't say that for sure. It's speculation. It doesn't really matter. He was near death. He was at the bottom. He was at the end of himself. While I was last on my last breath, verse 7, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you from your holy temple. There I was at the bottom, at the moorings of the mountains, like I was in a prison, earth's doors had closed around me. You brought me up from the pit. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. My prayer went up to you. Help! Look at verse 8. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. It seems strange that that would be thrown right into the middle of this account of Jonah and all he was going through. What about vain idols? What was Jonah's vain idol? What do you think? I think it was himself. He was focused on himself. That's why he ran from God. He was focused on his own preferences, his perception of God's call to ministry. It was fine when he was in Israel and he was prophesying to Israel and he was used by God to speak to God, to God's people. It's another thing to go thousands of miles away to Nineveh and preach to these heathens out of his comfort zone totally Jonah was so full of himself, he became an idol. He was worshiping his own will, his own desires. I find myself in Jonah's shoes sometimes, don't you? Finally, in verse 9, Jonah submitted to God. He says, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Finally, Jonah was broken. He came back to the realization of who he was, who God is, and he submitted to God. So God answered his prayer. Verse 10, God appointed a great fish. Said to him, go get him, he's had enough. Jonah had quite an experience, didn't he? He survived the storm but he sank to the bottom. He was swallowed and lived in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. But of all the experiences, here's the thing, the greatest thing that Jonah experienced. Jonah experienced brokenness at the bottom of the sea. God had a work for Jonah to do, but he had a work to do in Jonah before he could really use Jonah. The Jonah prior to the boat and the storm and the fish was called by God and God gave him instructions, but God knew that Jonah was still full of himself. And God knew what Jonah needed to bring him to the point. And God had to take him to the very bottom to do what he had to do in the life of the prophet. So let's take these verses, and there's just three observations I want to share with you. First of all, I want you to look at God's hand in the story. Remember when we first talked about Jonah, and we looked at the introduction, and we asked the question, 
What's it all about? Is it about a great fish? He's a supporting character. Is it about a prophet of God named Jonah? No, he's also a supporting character. Is it about Nineveh, this terrible, terrible city of heathens? No, that's also a supporting character. Who's the main character of the story? God. This is a story about the character of God. The love of God, the relationship that God wants to have with us and what he's willing to do in us in order to have that relationship. Jonah says, you cast me into the sea. It wasn't the sailors. Yeah, physically, they the heave ho, but it was you, God. It was you. Everything that is taking place is ultimately in the hand of God. So think of some words you might use to describe Jonah's situation. Here are the ones I came up with. Desperate, difficult, most of these words are understatements. Helpless, fearful, out of his control, hopeless. And who allowed it to take place? Who allowed Jonah to feel all of these negative emotions? God. Why would God do that? So here's the question for you. Will God take his people and allow them to experience difficult, desperate, difficult, helpless, fearful, out of control, hopeless situations? Will God do that? He did it to Jonah. Will he do that? All you have to do is read through the Old Testament. Read through the New Testament, the epistles. Look at Paul. Look at the situations in which people found themselves. He did. Exactly. So are we in those situations because of our poor decisions and our sin? Sometimes. Sometimes not. Think about David. What was the the one sin of David that stands out in your mind? How many think about Bathsheba and Uriah? Remember it tells us in Samuel how David was up on the rooftop and he looked down and he should have been with his army and he stayed home. He's looking down and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. He lusts after her. He brings her into his palace. And then when he tries to cover up the sin, he ends up having Uriah, her husband, killed. So David was guilty of of adultery. He was guilty of murder. Did God just let that go? Psalm 32 was written... In that context, it's called a contemplation. But as you look at Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But while David was trying to hide his sin, kind of like Jonah hiding his rebellion, God's hand was heavy on him. Has God's hand ever been heavy on you because of something you've done or haven't done that you should have done? And you tried to deal with it on your own and get away from it and ignore it. Remember 
the refreshing that came when God finally got through to you, his Holy Spirit convicted you, and you confessed your sin. Do you remember the, the weight going off of your shoulders? But sometimes it's not our sin. Think about Job. God was saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. And what happened to Job? Well, you all know the story of Job, don't you? You can go back and read it. He lost everything. But it wasn't because of his sin. But God had a work to do in Job, as you read through Job, after the catastrophes. And he has his three so-called comforters or friends there talking to him, saying, what did you do, Job? You, what did you do? And Job says, I'm innocent. And then Job has a conversation with God. And he says, God, tell me what's going on. Give me an answer. Do you remember God's words? I love it. It's scary, but I love it. He says, okay, Job. I'll answer you, but first you answer me a question. Stand up like a man and answer this question. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he goes on, where were you when? Where were you when? And Job was put in his place in relationship to the Almighty God, and he submitted to God. As a result of that, God did a work in Job, and Job was rewarded then multiple times for what he had lost. But it wasn't because Job did something wrong. It was because God had a work to do in Job. Will God allow it in our lives? Like you said, Jesus promised it. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have suffering. Yes, he will. Here's another question. Uh, thinking about God's hand in the story. Was the great fish late to arrive? You know, God could have just had that fish waiting as soon as Jonah's feet hit the water and could have swallowed him right then and avoided all the sinking and the scary part and the almost drowning. But he didn't. At the perfect time, at the appointed time, that fish arrived. He was right on time. How long will God allow you and me to be in situations where we're at the end of ourselves? How long? As long as it takes. First Peter chapter 5. I love this verse, these verses. Talking about suffering. When you're really suffering, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, does it feel temporary? No, you can't see an end to it, can you? While you're going through it. He says, in, uh, starting in verse 6 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brothers in the world. And then he says, but the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, will himself perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
Verse 10 doesn't make sense to me. After you suffered a little while, uh, suffering never seems like a little while to me. But from God's perspective, it's a temporary thing. And notice, it doesn't say, I'm going to send an angel or I'm going to send somebody else. to help. God himself, the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, himself will come. And he's going to use that suffering to establish you. So God's hand was in Jonah's story. He's also, his hand is in my story and your story. Second observation, look at the changed man. In chapter 1, Jonah was prayerless. He was running from God's presence. He was ungrateful. He was defiant and he was self-willed. Chapter 2, he wasn't prayerless. He was prayerful. He wasn't running from God's presence. He was longing for the presence of God. He was not ungrateful. He was thankful. He was not defiant. He was submissive. He was not self-willed. He was obedient. The change. What happened to Jonah? Why such a difference between the Jonah of chapter 1 and the Jonah of chapter 2? Well, here's, here's the simple way that God spoke to me. He said, in chapter 1, there's still a lot of Jonah left in Jonah. Think about that simple phrase. Still a lot of Jonah left in Jonah. God had to do something to bring Jonah to the end of himself. God loved him too much to stay like he was. And in Jonah's case, he had to take him to the bottom of the ocean, in the middle of a storm, for him to become a changed man. Now think about you and me. The greatest obstacle for me in living a Christian life and having Christ live through me, the biggest obstacle is there's too much of me in me. How about you? I think if we're really honest with ourselves, there's an awful lot of us left in us. Jonah experienced brokenness at the bottom of the sea. When I think about brokenness, I'm not thinking about brokenness like you take a, a, a vase and you throw it on a tile floor and it shatters into a million pieces, never being able to be put back together again. Here's what I mean by brokenness. Brokenness is a lifestyle where I'm depending on God more than I'm depending on myself. My, not my spirit, but my will is broken. So that my will becomes his will. John the Baptist, when talking about Jesus, remember what he said? I must decrease so that he may increase. Now, y'all know I'm a city boy. I was born and raised in Southern California. I'd never lived in the country before. Now we find ourselves living in Parowan, a little town, country town, just up the road. Surrounded by farmers and cowboys. And I am naive and know nothing. <laughs> but I'm interested. So I talked to some friends who have had cows, excuse me, horses. I thought, why do they call them a cowboy if they don't ride cows? <laughs> I talked to horsemen who have broken horses. 
Cowboys invest great time and patience in the process of breaking a horse. In order to bring the horse to its greatest potential and usefulness to its master. The key is gaining the trust of the horse. Part of it involves pressure. Some horses need more pressure than others to be able to have that will uh, controlled. It also, you find some horses that are in the process of being broken who just want to run. So the wise cowboy will let it run until it can run no more, and that horse learns that his master is patient and that the master knows best. So how do you know when the horse is broken? When the horse trusts his master and obeys his master's slightest nudge. You see a a, a, a horseman and a horse that are bonded together in that trust, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. As that horse responds just to the slightest amount of pressure and the reining and Watching that horse and that cowboy work is one. God is in the process of breaking me and you. He uses every situation, every circumstance, in the process of bringing us to the end of ourselves to complete dependence upon him. Paul was in that process. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Verses 7 through 11. Paul says, Lest I should be exalted above, by, above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In order to make us into who God wants us to be, that process of being conformed to the image of Christ, God uses every circumstance. Third observation, God's big plan. He has a plan for us. God is doing the same thing in your life and mine that he did in Jonah. Charles Stanley said, God loves us too much to allow us to remain where we are. He will do whatever it takes to bring us to the point of depending on him more than ourselves. So here's just a few things about brokenness. Brokenness develops our character to match our call. Jonah's character hadn't caught up with his call. Think about David. David was a young man when Samuel was sent by God to anoint him as the next king of Israel. But he spent 13 years running from King Saul while God prepared him for what he had called him to do and for what he had called him to be. Romans 8, 28, and 29 verses that I quote all the time that you probably have in your memory bank. 
For we know that God causes all things to what? Work together for our good. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. In verse 29, he says, For whom he foreknew, God knew ahead of time, he also predestined, planned, that we would become conformed to the image of his Son. God uses every circumstance in your life and mine in the process of chipping away the rough edges, bringing us more into conformity with who he wants us to be so that we're more like Jesus. He does use suffering. What did James say in chapter 1? He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter manifold trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let, let endurance have its perfect work in you. God uses negative circumstances to bring positive results. So brokenness develops our character to match our call. Brokenness is an ongoing process in our lives. I love the little button that, that used to be part of Bill Gothard's basic youth conflict seminar. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. How many can identify with that? We are a work in progress there's still a lot of self in me that needs to be rooted out. So brokenness develops our character to match our call. Brokenness is an ongoing process. Brokenness is the pathway to greater usefulness. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will not produce fruit. Galatians 2.20, have you memorized that one yet? If not, you should. I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? It's the same thing we're talking about here. Getting to the end of ourselves and trusting him more. 2 Corinthians Chapter uh, 1, verses 3 and 4. Again, verses that should be part of your memory bank. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our suffering so that we in turn may comfort others with the same comfort we've received. God uses suffering in your life so that you can be used by him to encourage others and bring them closer to Christ because you know what they're going through. It's the pathway to greater usefulness. And finally, brokenness is both God's work and ours. God applies the pressure. It's up to us. It's our responsibility as to how we respond to the pressure. We can choose how we respond. Think about Jonah. His first response wasn't so good. But God brought him around. No matter in what circumstance I find myself, I want to trust God more. I want to trust him more than I trust myself. Can you say that too? As we wrap things up, what do you do 
when you evaluate where you are with God. I think like Jonah in the belly of the fish, I need to look back. See where God has been working and what he's been doing. I need to look out at what's ahead of me. Where am I? What are my circumstances? What does God want me to do? I need to look in and see what it is that's causing me. Maybe it's not outward rebellion. Maybe it's passive was it passive-aggressive resistance. Maybe I'm just sitting instead of when God says stand and go. Hoping that God's going to change his mind and not ask me to do that. And finally, look up. Look back, look out, look in, look up like Jonah did. Say, okay, you win. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you.